we're continuing our series, Luke, and the idea behind this is it's a book that's all about investigating Jesus. Uh, Luke was writing for Theophilus, who was a Roman governor of some sort, and he's investigating the claims. He's heard a lot of things about Jesus, the different teachings of Jesus, and he wants to know, are these things true? Because for him to make that decision to follow Jesus and say that Jesus is Lord means that now he's going to come into conflict with the rulers that are over him. Because he has to sit there and say that Caesar is Lord and say that Caesar is really God and he's the highest authority. And then if you do that, you can have whatever, whatever other religion you want. But as Christians, we say Caesar isn't Lord. No one else is but Jesus. And we only bend our knee to King Jesus. So for him to make this decision means that he can walk away from all of his power, his influence, his wealth. He could even be walking away from his physical life itself to make this decision. So he wants to know, are the things that I've heard about Jesus true or not? And so Luke goes out and spends years doing investigative reporting, interviewing people who saw Jesus, interacted with him, were witnesses to the miracles, and he writes the book of Luke and then also the book of Acts as his report that he sends back to Theophilus. And I think for us it's really important that we do the same kind of thing. We can't just take what we've heard other people say about Jesus, our second-hand version of Jesus. We need to know who Jesus really is. We need to know the teachings of Jesus. We need to know the life of Jesus. We need to know the call of Jesus on every single one of our hearts. And so that's what we're doing as we're going through Luke, is we're investigating Jesus. And are the things that we thought that we knew about him true, or are they just things that someone said, and what is the truth about Jesus? Well, this week... I was uh, enjoying some time with my wife. I had both my kids in the bed, and, and Anna's there too. It's our cuddle time before we go to sleep. And I, was, I remember telling her afterwards, and I said, has life peaked? Like, is this as good as life is going to get? Because I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. They still think I'm awesome, which is great. They still want to cuddle. I can't imagine life getting any better than this. Or are we at the top now? Is life going to go downhill after this? So that made me a little bit sad. But I was just thinking back to what life was like before we had kids. And... I can't even remember. It's only been five years, but man, I, I don't remember. We could have built the pyramids with all the time that we used to have to ourselves. And I remember it was back in 2010. We'd been married for five years, and we didn't have any kids at this point. We're in our late 20s. So we say, you know, I guess we probably should have kids because, you know, it's a thing to do, and we're getting older, so let's get going on that so we can still climb the bleachers at their graduation from high school. <laughs> and so we just thought, like, you know, you just decide to have kids, and you have kids. And that wasn't how it worked for us. And so after a year of trying and still having no kids and like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with her? What's wrong with us? Trying to figure that out. And I remember one time Anna, she's crying because, you know, it's another not pregnancy test. And she's like, what's wrong with us? Is this going to happen? And I remember I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like a leader in my family and I'm really going to pastor my wife. And I said, you know, I held her tight and I'm like, Anna, this is God's protection over our lives because we're, we're making the plan right now to move to Ann Arbor. We're going to move in January of 2012. And I told her, like, this is March. Like, this would be the worst time in the world for us to get pregnant. Because the baby would be born right in January. And we're trying to plant a church. We've got to put our time and our energy and our focus into the church. Jesus is protecting us right now. Because this would be a disaster if we got pregnant. And then the next month, we are pregnant. And I remember we're sitting there and we're looking at that little test and we're waiting for it. And I'm like holding her tight, like, what's it going to say? Oh, Jesus, don't let us be pregnant. <laughs> and then it says, like, pregnant. And I just hold her tight and she's crying because she's so happy. And I'm crying because I'm like, Jesus, your protection, your wise plan. Like, what happened? We're going to have a baby in January now. This is going to mess everything up for us. What happened? 
And I told Anna, like, I'm so happy, but I wasn't. And, <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, we go through pregnancy, and we have to move our move date back, and I tease some of the people on the team, like, hey, we're not going now, and they're like, what? And, we, and so we moved in, in February, and I'm like, okay, this is a, a minor little hiccup, but we're going to get through it. It's not going to really complicate our lives that much. And then we thought, you know, Anna will be able to get a job over here so easy, all of the medical positions that are available here. And uh, her time ran up for her maternity leave, and she had to go back to work. And she was driving back to Kalamazoo, Michigan, every day to go to work. So the baby is three weeks, you know, it's about six weeks old at this time when she goes back to work. We've just moved, and she's having to drive two hours in the morning, gets up at four to drive back to Kalamazoo to work, and then comes back. And so me, instead of, like, you know, meeting people and building a team, I'm, like, trying to raise a baby that I don't know what on earth I'm doing. I never changed a diaper before. So all of my time and efforts going into trying to figure out how to be a dad. And I remember she comes home and she's falling asleep on the way home. And I'm trying to talk to her to keep her awake. I'm falling asleep and the baby's doing who knows what. <laughs> and she gets home and then our house is filled with people because we're trying to start a church. We're trying to build a team. So it's like, okay, she comes home, there's people there, and then she goes to bed because she's got to wake up at four. The baby's up through the night. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And I mean, oh, life's great, everything's good, you know, we're blessed. And I was like, this is the most inconvenient way we ever possibly could have started a church. <laughs> and having a baby when we did meant incredible sacrifice and meant incredible hardship for Anna with having to go back and forth to Kalamazoo all the time. Uh, it was the most inconvenient thing that ever could have possibly happened to us at that time. But it was also the greatest blessing that we had ever received to that point in our lives. And all of the pain that we went through and all of the suffering, all of the sacrifice, anxiety, nervousness, all of that stuff was just so absolutely worth it. The inconvenience was worth it because of the blessing that we received through our son, Eason. And now as we continue in Luke, we're looking at uh, verses 26 through 38. And we're going to meet Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what we see as we look at Jesus is he was really an inconvenient savior. And as we begin this, it says this about Mary. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David, Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. And the first thing that we see just from this first paragraph is that Jesus doesn't care about your social standing. It's something that he is just not concerned about. When we look at who it is that Jesus comes to, when we look at the Savior of the world comes into the earth and he's going to have a mom, Mary is not the person that we would have picked to do that. Every time you've seen a picture of Mary, uh, especially you've seen a lot of Catholic art and stuff, you always see a woman that looks like she's a white woman in her mid-30s, maybe late-30s. She's wearing a beautiful, elegant gown. She wears a golden crown that's incredible. She has a little halo around the golden crown. And she's holding little baby Jesus, who even though it has a baby body, has a man face with a beard. <laughs> it's like the creepiest thing you will ever see. And Jesus has a little crown on, and he has a halo around him as well, and he's also white somehow. And uh, this is the idea that we get when we look at Mary from popular art, but this is not Mary. That is not what she looked like. That, she didn't have a crown. Jesus didn't have a crown. They didn't have halos and nice dresses, and they weren't white. Um, everything about those pictures is wrong. Mary was a young woman. 
Most people think she was between the ages of 12 and 16 because she was betrothed, and usually that happened between the ages of 12 and 16 for a Jewish woman. So uh, this isn't like, you know, a grown woman. This is a girl. This is someone that's very young, someone that doesn't have a lot of life experience yet. This is not who we would have picked to be the mother of Jesus. And she's a peasant. She doesn't have beautiful dresses. She doesn't have golden crowns. She's poor. Her parents were peasants. She was a peasant. She was marrying a peasant. She's from Galilee, which is a small little tiny fishing village of, some people say, as small as 50 people and maybe a maximum of 200 people in this town. This isn't, and when we think of a town, it's not that. It's just a few homes. Uh, the homes, actually, you kept the animals inside of the home with you. It was dirty. There was a lot of squalor, poverty. Uh, this is Mary's life. She's young. She's poor. She's most likely illiterate. She's uneducated. She's engaged to a man named Joseph, who a lot of you know, people sometimes think that he was this really old guy. That's not most likely what happened. He was probably a young guy just like her, and he was a carpenter. And he's probably, like if you guys ever had a, you know, a 14, 15-year-old kid, or maybe a 36-year-old if you're like me, and every day they're checking to see if they've got any hair on their face yet, and it's like that real scruffy, nasty hair, and they're just rocking it out, though, because they want to be a man. That's Mary and Joseph. That's the reality of their life. They're oppressed people. They're a despised race and religion. They're living in an occupied land. It's not like the pictures that we see. Their social status was very, very low. They were not the people that we would have picked. We wouldn't let Mary get a driver's license. We don't let our 12 and 13-year-olds get married. We don't even let them drive. You probably wouldn't even let Mary be the nanny of Jesus if you were the one that was picking this out. You're saying, okay, God's going to come down and take on human flesh, so we're going to get someone to take care of him. You're not going to pick Mary. You want someone that's educated. You want someone that's refined and sophisticated. You want someone that has the education. You want someone that has the experience. But the qualifications that God looks for aren't the qualifications that we look for. God doesn't pick the people that we would have picked. We saw that last week as we were looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth. Those aren't the people that we would have picked to be used greatly by God. It's what we're going to see again and again as we go through the book of Luke. This is a big theme throughout the entire gospel. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching. It's that God doesn't care about your social status. He doesn't care about your education. He doesn't care about your qualifications that the world looks at. God looks at your heart. And he chooses people not based on social standing or anything else that this world sees, but based upon his plans and his purposes. And then it continues on and it says, Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So the next thing that we see is that Jesus is confusing and disturbing. That's probably not something you hear a lot of preachers say. That's not like the most encouraging thing. It's not a bumper sticker that anybody has on their car that I'm aware of. But that's the reality. That's the truth of it. This is what it says about Mary. She's trying to process through this. It says that she's confused and that she's disturbed by it. The angel has come and said, you're favored, you're blessed, explains that she's going to give birth to the Savior of all the world, and she's confused and she's disturbed. 
If you've never found yourself in a place where you're confused and disturbed by what it is that Jesus says, then you haven't been listening to him well enough. And it's not that Jesus is confusing and disturbed, it's that we're confused and we're the disturbed ones. And so when Jesus comes and he has his incredible plan with all of the wisdom of God in it, it makes perfect sense and it's beautiful, it's as wise as anything ever could be, but it makes absolutely no sense to our human minds. It's as out there as anything possibly could be. But I think you guys get that. God told you to go to a church in a movie theater. Is that confusing? Disturbing, perhaps? There were some of you where you had some money, some people that gave very sacrificially so that we could get our building. God told you to do that, and that might have been confusing and disturbing for some of you. So you're like, wait, God, I got this money. This is what I, I have a plan for what I'm going to do with this. Now you're calling me to go and to give all of my money so that we can have another place where the church meets. I kind of like the movie theater now. It's not that bad of a place. It's got popcorn and jujubes. That's, that's good enough for me, Jesus. Some of you, your parents might have been confused and disturbed when you brought someone home that you said you were going to marry. Some of you might feel that way someday when your kids do that. But the plan of God oftentimes is something that we don't get. He's going to call us to do things that are not the things that we would have done. He's going to call us to do things that because of our flesh nature, because of the fallenness and the brokenness that's inside of us, we're going to be really confused and we're going to be really disturbed by some of the things that Jesus calls us to do. Has he ever called you to forgive someone and you thought, Jesus, how on earth could I ever forgive them? Jesus, it's not even right for me to forgive this person. Do you know what they did? Sometimes when you're reading through the Bible and some of the things that Jesus says, the way that we're supposed to love our enemies, doesn't that confuse you? And even if you say, okay, Jesus, I see I'm supposed to love my enemies, but I am really confused as to how it is that I can actually do that. Jesus is full of confusing and disturbing things to us. And that's part of the deal. That's part of the way that he operates. And Mary, as she's trying to process through all of this, the angel begins to explain how it is that she's going to give birth to a Messiah. And so this really clears it up. Mary says, uh, Mary asks the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. She's thinking, I don't know how it works in angel land, but around here there's not a whole lot of virgins that are giving birth to Messiahs, or anybody for that matter. And the angel replied, the Most High will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby will be born, who will be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and now is in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. So not only is Jesus confusing and disturbing when things get explained as to how this is going to work out, we find out that Jesus is really inconvenient. If it just been, hey, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, that's not too bad, but when he said, well, when the angel says, you're going to be a virgin that gives birth and you're going to get this great honor of being this, the unwed single mother that's going around in a culture that's going to shame you for that. I mean, who do you think believed this story that Mary told everybody? Hey, I got this big baby bump, but what happened was, you know, I wasn't sleeping around. I'm a virgin. And, you know, this is God. This is God in here. You know who believed her? Nobody. Not even Joseph. Her fiancé, who she's been faithful to, I mean, think about this, she's been planning out her life. 
For those of you that are married or engaged, that, that's like the exciting part of your life. You have all of these plans that haven't been dashed by reality yet, and you're, you have all of these hopes and dreams that are set before you. You just dream about, my life is going to be so good when we get married, and we're just going to, I'm going to hold him in my arms, and we're going to fall asleep, and I won't lose circulation in my arm when I'm doing that. You have all these, and they're never going to have bad breath or make weird sounds in their sleep. Like you have all of these ideas for what marriage is going to be like, and you're planning that. You're dreaming. This is the one time where you just dream for the moon, and nobody can come and ruin that for you. And that's what Mary's doing. She's a young girl. She's planning out this wedding to dream boy Joseph and the life that they're going to have together. I might be poor. I might be uneducated. I might be despised by the world that's around me because of my race and my religion. But life is going to be okay because I've got Joseph. And Joseph is doing the same thing. I might be a carpenter, and I'm going to have to make chairs and tables and stools for people. Nobody's going to appreciate the art behind it. And I'm going to work really hard, and I'll probably die at an early age because it's 2,000 years ago. But I'm marrying Mary, and we're going to have these kids, and we're going to have a football team, and life is going to be great. And into this, they have all of these plans for what's going to happen, and they're making out. Not, not what they're making. Oh, gosh, sorry, this is getting <laughs> weird. Man! It was like, did you know Mary and Joseph were making out? No, that's not, don't go home and say that. That's not what you learned in church today. They have all these plans that they're making, and into the middle of it, God says, my plan for you is you're going to be an unwed single mother. And your dream boy is going to think that you cheated on him, and he's going to want to break up with you. And it takes an angelic visitation to come and explain that this really is the Son of God and that she has been faithful to you. He's making plans to divorce her already. They're not even married, and he's getting ready to divorce her. But he's such a good guy that he wants to do it quietly and not shame her about it, but he's still going to leave her. Her parents didn't believe her. Can you imagine Joseph trying to tell his parents, yeah, so Mary's pregnant, I'm not the father, but it's okay, she's a virgin, she didn't cheat on me, it's going to be okay. Joseph, you're an idiot. Like, dude, love is blind. Get with the program. She cheated on you. That's God's plan for them. That's inconvenient. It wasn't the plan that they had. It wasn't the dreams that they had been making for themselves. Her own family, they don't believe her. And she lives in a society where she could have been stripped naked and beaten with, uh, with whips and then dressed up and humiliated, called all sorts of terrible names. Her son that she's bearing, the savior of the world, he's going to be subjected. He's going to be called a bastard his entire life. Think about that. Jesus, the savior, comes like that. It was really inconvenient for them. It wasn't the plan that they made. It wasn't the life that they had made for themselves. And this is the thing that we all have to understand, is that Jesus comes as an inconvenient Savior to all of us. God's plan for our lives and his call in our life, it's not the plans that we were making. It comes to us at a time that's inconvenient. Now imagine, if this had happened, if they could have gotten married and then Jesus comes through her, that would have saved them a lot of humiliation, wouldn't it? Nobody would have suspected anything. Nobody would have said a word. But that wasn't God's plan for them. God's plan for you isn't a convenient plan for you. It's not the time that you wanted it to happen to. But Jesus still comes to you. 
And he says, I know that you have plans that you've been making for your life. I know that you have hopes. I know that you have dreams. I know that you have desires that are deep inside of you. But I'm calling you to lay all of those things aside to come and to follow me. In the confusion and the disturbance that I bring at this inconvenient time, our Savior comes to us. And he says, I want you to die to yourself. Why would anybody follow a Savior like this? If you thought through that, why would Mary agree to this plan? Like, oh yeah, sounds good, sign me up. Why do we agree to follow Jesus when we know that this is what it means for us? That it is going to be confusing. It's going to be disturbing for us. We're not going to understand it. We're going to have questions that we can't answer. We're going to have to die to ourselves. Why is it that we would ever follow a Savior like this? And the answer is because of who this Savior is. Because of his nature. Because of his character. Because of the life that he brings to us. And we see the first glimpses of that in this announcement by the angel. The foretelling of what Jesus is going to be like. It says, first of all, that Jesus is fully human. It's easy to think that Jesus is just God, that he, he doesn't understand what it's like to be human, but he is as human as anyone ever has been. And the proof of that is that he had a mother. He didn't just like float down from heaven on a cloud. He came into the world that we all do. He passed through a birth canal like all of us. Jesus came as a baby that wore diapers and soiled diapers. He nursed. He spit up. He grew up. He got sick. As, like everybody else that had the norovirus in the last couple of weeks, you know what? Jesus knows what it's like to have intestinal distress. And that's what I always think about. You don't think about God like that, but every time I'm like, have a bucket and I'm laying there and I'm like, Jesus, I'll be a missionary. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just take this away from me. Like, Jesus knows what that's like. He didn't hold himself back from the human experience. He came and he experienced all of it with us. He knows what it's like to have friends. He knows what it's like to have friends that aren't your friends anymore. He knows what it's like to get in, you know, like it has the bully that comes and pushes you around. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Have you ever been tempted by something or a sin that you've struggled with and you're like, oh Jesus, like help me, there's no way anybody could resist this. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Every sin that you've been tempted with, Jesus has been tempted with that too. But he overcame it. But he knows what it's like. So think about that sin that you struggle with. God came and identified with us in being tempted as well. He went through more temptation than any of us ever will go through. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be brokenhearted. He knows what it's like to lose someone that he loves. He even knows what it's like to feel far from God the Father. And you know what the great encouragement is to me in that? You see, some people would look at Christianity and they would say because of Jesus that our God isn't great. Because no great God would ever come and live like a human. I think that shows just how great our God is. And that he would be willing to give up the glory of heaven. That he would be willing to come and to undergo the pain that we go through. To have to deal with questions that we deal with. To hurt just like we hurt. Because you know, when, I, when I go to someone and I used to pray for people at the hospitals before I'd ever been sick, it's like, hey, I know things are really terrible for you, but Jesus is just going to be so good through this. Let me encourage you. And they're like, you've never been sick a day of your life. Now that I've been sick and I've been on the operating table, 
and not know if you're going to wake up after the surgery, now I can go there because now I've been through something. Now I can identify with what it is that they're going through. And they, they can have a lot more hope for me. And I receive a lot more hope from people when I was going through my sickness. And I talk to people that have been through it. Jesus offers us hope because he is human. Because he knows exactly what it's like to go e through everything that we go through. And number two, it says that he's fully God. It says that he's the son of the most high. Although he is fully human, he's more than just a human. He's God has taken on human flesh. And so every single human that's around us, they're going to let us down. They're going to fail us. They're going to succumb to temptation and sin. But Jesus was different because he was God. He was fully man. He was fully God. And he was able to conquer. And he was able to, able to overcome all of the things that we go through. It says that he was king. It says that he would be a great king. Uh, when you look at Herod, his, he was Herod the Great. That was trying to puff them up to show that they weren't just any ruler, but that they were an incredible ruler with lots of power, with lots of authority. But it says that Jesus is going to be the greatest king. He's going to be the king over all kings. There is no one who will ever have power and authority like Jesus has. He is the highest one that we can appeal to. We don't have to go to senators. We don't have to go to a president. We don't have to go to a Supreme Court. We can go directly to the king of all kings, and we plead our cause to him. It says that he's eternal, that he would reign and rule forever. We're used to rulers that rule for two years, four years, eight years, sometimes 20. If you look around the world, there's been some people who have ruled for 50 years, but every single government, every single administration ends up crumbling eventually. The ones you love, the ones you hate, it doesn't matter. It's all temporal. When you look at the cultures that are around us, even what we believe is right and wrong continues to shift and to change culturally. But when we come to Jesus, he's the one who's eternal. We don't put our hope in someone that is going to fade. We don't put our hope in someone that's going to be impeached or that's going to lose an election. We didn't vote for Jesus. He can't be removed. He reigns and he rules forever. And then it goes on to say that he is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for Jesus because all power is in him. If he can cause the virgin to conceive and give birth, what can't he do? Think about this. He rose from the grave. He was dead, and then he was alive again, never to die again. He's defeated sin and death. Nothing is impossible for him. It says that he's the one who spoke the world into being, that there was nothing, and then he spoke, and then there was stuff. What can't God do? This is the encouragement. When you look at your life and the greatest problem that you're facing right now, that impossible situation, that's not impossible for Jesus. That's not impossible for our eternal king because he is all-powerful. Your greatest problem is no problem for him. He's stronger. He is greater than it. It goes on to say that he is sinless. It said that he would be born uh, not from human means but conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he could be holy, meaning that he was going to be sinless. He would be able to overcome sin. We all go through life. We have the seed of Adam in us. There's sin that's a part of the way that we're born. It's a part of our broken, fallen nature. It says that we're slaves to sin. Try not to sin. Good luck with that. You're going to end up sinning eventually because you were a slave to sin. But Jesus was different. He didn't have that seed of Adam in him. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, which meant that he could go through temptation and that he could overcome it. He lived a sinless life. And the reason why it's so important that Jesus lived a sinless life is because that enables him to be our Savior. His name literally means he saves us from our sins. 
It's why Jesus came. It's why we see this whole plan that's been enacted that we're beginning to see now in the beginning of the book of Luke. Is that he came to save us from our sins. Because every single one of us, we have sinned. People have sinned against us. We've been hurt, we've been broken, we've rebelled against God, against his call, against his plan for our life. Every single one of us is worthy of the separation that we experience from God. Every one of us is worthy of hell. We're worthy of death. And that can be a hard thing to accept because we want to say, no, I'm a really good person, I'm not as bad as, you know, so-and-so. But the reality is, we don't compare ourselves to other people, we're compared to the holy God and to his call on our lives. And we don't measure up to Jesus. We don't measure up to what it is that he called us to do. We don't measure up to who it is that he's called us to be. And that's why Jesus came as our Savior. The sinless one who's all-powerful came to lay his life down for us so that we could have life in him, so that we could be saved from our sins. And the last thing that this shows about him is that he's humble. Even though he's all-powerful, even though he's the eternal king who rules and reigns over all things, even though he is God, he's so humble. And that he would come to a people like us. And when he came to earth, he wasn't announced to the kings. He wasn't born to royalty. He wasn't born in the palace with the wealth and the crowns and the halos and all of the other things. He came to a poor peasant woman. He came and lived a hard life, working as a carpenter himself. He was supposed to be worshipped and adored by angels in heaven. And he came, and he knew what it was like to be sick. He knew what it was like to hurt. He came to serve and to lay his life down for the people who had rejected him, who had rebelled against him. That's how humble our Jesus is. That's how loving this inconvenient Savior is. And this is the response that Mary has after she finds out that your whole life is going to be all messed up, all your plans are going to be put aside, it's confusing, it's disturbing, Jesus' plan for your life is going to be inconvenient. But because of who Jesus is, this is the response of Mary. It says in verse 38, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. And what we learn from this as we close is that Jesus comes to those who accept an inconvenient Savior. Mary was willing to lay her life down, all of her dreams, all of her hopes, her aspirations, her desires, all of that, she was willing to leave those behind so that she could have Jesus. And that's the call of every one of us because Jesus comes to every one of our hearts. We all have that moment of where Jesus comes to us and he knocks on the door of our heart and he reveals himself and his love and his mercy, his compassion for us. And he says, let me in. I have plans for you. I have good plans for you. I'm calling you to walk away from the old life that you've been living with all of its desires, with all of the hopes and all of the things that you think you're going to attain through this life that you've been living. I'm calling you to lay all of that aside. And to accept me as an inconvenient Savior that changes everything about your life. And the decision that we have to make isn't, okay, Jesus, do I try to incorporate you into this life that I already have? It's, do I leave everything else behind 
so that I can have the life that Jesus alone can give me. And that's a daily decision that we make. Every day we come back to this place of Jesus knocking on the door of our heart and saying, I'm coming to you. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter what other people think about you. I'm coming to you and I have plans for your life that are good plans. You might not understand them all. It might be confusing and disturbing to you, but you can trust me because I am good. You can trust me because I know what it's like to be human and to go through what it is that you're going through. You can trust me because I'm all-powerful. I'm the king that reigns and rules over everything. You can trust me because I'm humble and I'm love. But we have to decide which life we're going to hold on to. We're going to hold on to the life that we've been trying to make for ourselves. Or are we going to say, Jesus, I'm going to let you mess all of that up so that I can have the life that you alone can provide for me? And when you make that decision, it says that Jesus comes and he inhabits us. That he comes and he lives with us. He begins to change us. He begins to make us like him. He begins to change our will. He begins to change our desires inside of us. He gives us new life where we know him. And it's no longer us living our life separated from God, but it's us knowing God, hearing him speak to us. It's us speaking to God and laying our our heart out there for him. It's him ministering to us, bringing us peace and comfort. He brings us joy. He brings us new hope, new dreams, new desires, new destiny inside of us. And all we have to do is say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I want you. Let your life be unto me. Let your plans be unto me. And that's a decision we all make every day. I invite you, let's just pray together. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Father, this morning as we come to you, we thank you that you come. That you didn't leave us alone, that you didn't hold us at arm's length away from us. Jesus, this morning, would you speak to our hearts? Would you reveal to us if we've been living the life for you? or if we're still trying to live our own life. And this morning, if, if you know that you need to continue to surrender and to accept God's plan, accept His forgiveness, accept His life for you, and you just keep making that decision every day of Jesus, forgive me, Jesus, I'm repenting. I'm going to stop living after my own way and I'm going to come and I'm going to follow you with everything that's inside of me. Jesus, would you fill me with new life? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? God, would you fill me with peace and with joy? Would you start to bring understanding to my mind? God, would you strengthen me to live this new life that you've called me to, even when other people reject me, even when other people don't understand? God, would you give me strength to continue to stand and to come after the life that you've called me to? Jesus, even when I'm confused, Jesus, would you give me strength and would you give me peace to be able to follow in the footsteps that you've laid before me? In Jesus, more than anything, would we find you? Would we know you? Would we walk in your will for our lives? Would we walk in relationship with you? In knowing you, the King of all kings, 
and your power at work in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to call um, my prayer partners down. They're going to be in this middle section here. And as everybody else is leaving, if, if you want to come and you want to be prayed for, we see God move miraculously every single week in response to the prayers of his people. And if you're new here with us today, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. There's a lot of things that you could have done. The sun is out in February. You could have gone to the lake. Uh, but you chose to be here with us, and we're so grateful for that. You might have received a communication card when you came in. If not, you can grab one at the information table. We'd love to have you fill it out. We have free radiant t-shirt for you as a way of saying thank you so much for being here. And uh, then this week, I'll shoot you an email and just welcome you to Radiant Church and see if there's anything that we can do for you. And also, we have our next step class today, Discover, which if you've ever wanted to know about how it is that you can uh, recognize what it is that God's called you to do, we believe that God designed you uniquely and specifically with a personality and with spiritual gifts that he's given you. And when you discover what those things are, it reveals to you the, the things that God's called you to do. So we're going to have lunch in there. It's going to take place at 1130 in our next steps room. You can just go right in over there after church or go to the next next table and we can direct you there and it'll be a great opportunity to learn more about how it was that God made you. So I uh, encourage you to go out there, drink some coffee, eat some snacks, make some friends, come let us pray for you, and we'll see you next week. God bless.